Mark 7, 24 through 30. From there he set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Father, we thank you for this morning and this time to be together. We pray uh, a blessing on this time, Lord, as we're with brothers and sisters. Uh, Lord, I pray you bless the conversations, you bless this time together. Lord, I pray now that you open our hearts and our minds, and may your spirit work in us and transform us more into your image. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. So we have this saying in our family about food. You have to try everything at least once. Anyone else's family have that mantra when it comes to food? Anybody else? You got to try at least once. No one, including myself, is allowed to say they don't like something. If they have never tried it, it's just the rule. If you are ever with me at a table, and for reference, you can ask Angela sitting right over there about these experiences, and you say you don't like something, then don't be offended if the next question I ask you is, have you ever tried it? I know it's silly, but how many of us have ever been surprised by something, whether it's food or people? We have this way of placing a label on it before the actual experience. It's like sushi. We see it and think, ooh, I don't like it. Have you ever tried it? We decide before ever really discerning whether the thing is good or not, it's bad. And maybe we do it because this is how it's always been. I've always been told that this is bad. I've always been told this thing is not good. Maybe it's because we just know that we will not like whatever it is. You ever had that kind of intuitive know that I'm just not going to like that. I'm not going to like that person. I'm not going to like that thing. I don't know the why all the time, but it always seems to have that we always seem to have one thing when it comes to mind that we just don't like. So we get into habits and traditions and just thinking this is the way it must or this is the way it must be in life and no expectation of being surprised because we want to keep our lives within kind of these guardrails. I like it or I don't and that's as far as we're going to go and it's just the way it is because it's the way it's always been and it's the way it always will be. And so when Jesus encounters the Pharisees in the first part of our reading this week in chapter 7, they have a question. And the question is hand-washing. Hand-washing was a huge deal when it came to identifying the Jew from the Gentile, from the clean and the unclean. And as one theologian describes the scene, he says this, The scribes and Pharisees are not obsessing over a matter of hygiene and physical dirt. They are concerned about the ritual laws that govern dietary rules and regulations. They are concerned about the identity marker that was of the Jews washing their hands. It was a big deal for them. 
They didn't have much about, uh, they didn't have much being a people oppressed and occupied by a foreign power, but what they did have was their traditions that marked them as different than everyone else. Jesus' disciples in this first part of chapter 7 seem to be ignoring that held tradition of identity marking, of washing hands. They were making themselves, in the eyes of the Pharisees in this moment, unclean. Hand washing was a way for Gentiles to be identifiable and easy excluded from the group. And so by not following the rituals of hand washing, Jesus and his disciples are in a way blurring the lines or enlarging the circle a little bit. Because you see, the Pharisees have created their own rules. And as Jesus explains, apart from the law of Moses, as we see in verses 9 through 13. He says, you're fine. You have a fine way. I like this. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to keep your tradition. As Britt said in class, Jesus never learned how to make friends and influence people very well. He says, you've got a fine way of doing that. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever speaks evil of father and mother must surely die. But you say that if anyone tells father or mother, whatever support you might have had from me is Corbin, that is an offering to God, then you no longer permit doing anything for a father or mother, thus making void the word of God through your tradition that you handed on, and you do many things like this. You see, the Pharisees had their own ideas of traditions and what mattered and clean and unclean ideas. The Pharisees had projected upon the community the traditions of the elders, and these traditions, actually following these traditions, determined if someone was in or if someone was out. And in this way, the Pharisees were determining who was acceptable and who was unacceptable based on their ideas. Because when we talk about hand-washing, We have to really, if we look back in Exodus, we see that it was given as a priestly duty. It wasn't given as an ordinary individual doing their thing duty. It was a priestly duty. And the Pharisees have kind of decided it would be for everyone. And so, as we begin to see this, this is this way for the Pharisees to determine who is acceptable and who is unacceptable, which, as we see, is always based on an outward appearance, always based on following, apart from, as we begin to read Jesus, an inward orientation towards God. The Pharisees were not worried about the heart being transformed. It was more about following all the right rituals, doing all the right things. The Pharisees were worried about the outward appearance of being unclean while God wanted to transform the person from the inside. And so when Jesus goes into the house with the disciples, and this is fascinating in verse 17, because before he says this big statement, this punchline here in a minute about all this, he takes the disciples into the house, shuts the door, away from the rest of the crowd, because what he's about to say is pretty is a pretty big deal. He's about to get to the heart of the matter with the community to understand purity, that the kingdom was never about an exclusive club, but an inclusive kingdom of transformation. What matters to God in the kingdom is the transformation of the heart. While the Pharisees are worried about some ritualistic washing, uh, washing the unclean off of their body, remember this whole idea? They miss the greater desire of God, a transformed person on the inside. Therefore, Jesus has this ultimate punchline in in chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, when he says this, 
Of course, the disciples don't understand. He says, then do you fail to understand? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile, since it enters not the heart but the stomach and goes out into the sewer? And then Mark throws this little thing in here. Thus he declared all foods clean. The punchline here is Jesus is saying, how you perform the rituals does not make you clean or unclean. Get this, he just made however many thousands of years of ideas of what it meant to food you could eat and what you had to do on the outside, and that made you clean. Jesus wiped that all away in one moment, and maybe we can understand why he took the disciples into a house and shut the door before he said this, because this would be revolutionary. This would get him killed. What you eat, or if you wash your hands, is not the identifiable marker of your place before God. This is dangerous stuff that Jesus is saying. So much so, he says it behind closed doors. The kingdom is not about perfect people doing everything perfectly. The kingdom is not about the perfect pictures you post on the internet. You know those pictures. Everyone puts them on the internet. You know, we never, I've said this before. We never put the pictures of when life is crazy. We always put the perfect pictures of our family because we want everyone to think we're a perfect Family. The kingdom isn't about your family being perfect. It's not even about how you vote or voting in an acceptable way. It's not even about perfect attendance, folks. Some of us might think that, and I know I have been guilty of this way of thinking many times. Check the right boxes, and I'm better than most. As long as I have more checked boxes than unchecked boxes, everything should be good. Jesus seems to be saying the kingdom will be a people willing to be changed and transformed. Loving your neighbor is going to start with the changing of the heart, not how well you wash your hands. So when an unclean woman, an unclean Gentile woman in a place tire, that's not really the nicest place for a Jew to be, comes onto the scene in our reading in Mark 7, 25 and 26, we are confronted with the problem. Because this is the kind of woman that no Jew would talk to. I mean, I know we've seen other healings, and we've noticed that those have been Jewish people, right? The, the, the woman bleeding was a Jewish woman who was considered unclean. Now we're getting into some pretty sketchy areas with a Gentile woman who, by, by what we see, has a daughter who has an unclean spirit in her. This woman is unclean upon unclean upon unclean upon unclean. Now Jesus has just challenged all the sensibilities of clean and unclean. He's just challenged the Pharisees and the scribes about what it means to be clean and unclean. He has blurred the lines and pushed away many of the barriers. And now Jesus finds himself being challenged by an unclean Gentile woman. Remember all those barriers the Pharisees had put up against becoming unclean or even being associated with unclean people? Jesus now finds himself confronted by their teachings and his rebuke in the form of this woman. This woman personifies everything we've just read in the first 24 verses of Mark 7. And what do we know about this woman? We know she's desperate. We see it here in 25 and 26. We see that she comes to Jesus. She falls on her feet. She's begging Jesus for help. She believes, even as a Gentile, that Jesus can do to her daughter what he has done to Jairus' daughter, 
what he has done to a, a, bleed, a woman with bleeding issues. He, she believes that Jesus can do that very same thing to her, and it doesn't matter if she's Gentile or not. This is like, I got no other hope, and this is it. She's heard the stories that have been circulating and desperately wants Jesus to do the same for her daughter. <clears throat> Excuse me. The English doesn't do justice to her actions here. When we read it, we read this as like this one-time saying at event, like she comes up and falls and says this one thing to Jesus. But in the Greek, it actually indicates a continuous action by the woman. She is begging Jesus over and over as he is walking with him. She will not go away. I can imagine the disciples with Jesus getting to a point of annoyance with her. We've seen the disciples get annoyed. It's it's like, I don't know, a five-year-old who won't leave you alone, who asks the same question over and over and over and over again and is not satisfied with any answer except the one he's looking for. All Jesus' interactions and healings have been with Jewish people. What's he going to do this time? And we begin to see that this is different. This woman is different. She's got some gumption. She's got a desire to see Jesus do what he can do. And she won't take no for an answer, it feels like. I wrote it in my note. She's like a dog getting a bone, which is a really interesting metaphor when we read what Jesus is about to say. Because Jesus' response to the woman is where theologians have commented, things get a bit dicey. This is a bit of a hard response that Jesus gives to this woman. Jesus' response to this woman in verse 27, you would think, would quiet her down. Jesus' response to this woman in verse 27 should let her know that there is no healing for her and that she needs to go away. And let's not make any bones about it. Let's not try to beat around the bush. It is a terse response from Jesus. It's the response you give the five-year-old to go away. It's the look you give the five-year-old to go away. And the disciples have to be thinking that when Jesus says this, let the children be fed first, for it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. The disciples have to be thinking at this point, she's gone. That, that did it. It's exactly what you need to say, Jesus. She's going to get out of the way. Because you have to realize that this whole scene could be considered quite embarrassing for Jesus because this woman does not have the right to constantly and consistently be begging him. I mean, she's just not going to let it go, and she's a Gentile. What does she think is going to happen? Jesus' response tells her where her place is in the pecking order, and it's not very high. That response by Jesus is difficult to hear because he compares her and her people, Gentiles, to a dog. The most unclean of animals in the first century. Dogs were not the beloved pets that we think of today. This was not a response of affection by Jesus, but this was actually very close to a slur by Jesus. And so how do we take this? How do we want to, how do we want to think about Jesus? How do we want to think about what Jesus is saying here? The disciples must think this is the woman's breaking point. I mean, what else is Jesus going to do in the moment? I mean, you have to ask why say this. Why, why be this mean, Jesus? Why be this kind? Why have this kind of response? And, 
And, and instead of minimizing it, we take the text and we read it for what it is. And we ask, ourselves, ask ourselves, what is Jesus doing here? And this is where it gets a little dicey. Some think Jesus believes his ministry is to the Jews right now. And there's some truth to that. It comes first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. Others believe Jesus is using, being very creative in his teaching techniques for his disciples to understand what Jesus had just said prior about what is clean and unclean. And maybe it's a little bit of both. Maybe it's a little bit of Jesus has an understanding as we read that this kingdom comes first to the Jews, his ministry is to the Jews, but Jesus was also real creative in his teaching. And so maybe it's a little bit of both. And you, you, you know what I think, and this is just me, and if I'm wrong, find me afterwards and gripe me out. I think Jesus was hoping the woman would respond the way she did. We can't lie that we know that Jesus has this uncanny ability of knowing what everyone's thinking around them. Mark said that to us, right? The Pharisees are thinking, and he's like, well, what are you saying this for? Well, okay. What are you thinking this? I think Jesus was hoping this woman would respond this way. I think with everything going on, with what Jesus has dealt with about the traditions of the Pharisees, I think Jesus is proving his point with this woman. I like what Ched Meyer said about this. I like what he says about this uncomfortable moment. He says this, A Jesus allows himself to be shamed, to become the least, in order to include this pagan woman in the new community of the kingdom. So too Judaism will have to suffer the indignity of redefining its group boundaries in order to realize that Gentiles are now welcomed as equal. I think Jesus was kind of hoping this woman would be up to the task. I do. The disciples are walking along with him, and he says what he says about her being a dog, and the disciples are like, yeah, that's what you tell Gentiles, as if they missed everything Jesus had just said. Teaching moment. That's right, Jesus. Tell her exactly who she is. Tell her who her people are. And you know what this woman does? She actually wins the argument with Jesus, whether you want to say it or not. She does. Dogs, while considered unclean by Jews, were domesticated by Gentiles. They were allowed into the house, and in a way, they became a part of the family. How many of us have dogs who are part of the family? Right? Gentiles did that. And as far as she sees it with her response, there is enough food for her as well. Even if she's considered a dog. She makes, takes the metaphor that Jesus gives to her and flips it on its head. She still believes Jesus can, outside of the boundaries, can cross the boundaries and heal her daughter. And in a moment, we get a glimpse of this Gentile, unclean woman's heart. We see where faith really lies. An unclean woman, and what's in her heart comes out. I can see the disciples, when the woman pushed back against Jesus, cringe a little bit because she pushes back. He says it, and she goes, sir, even the dogs on the table eat the children's crumbs. She's not backing down. I can see the disciples, the minute she says that, go, oh my. Come on, how many of you have ever been somewhere when somebody snaps back at somebody, and you're like, something's about to go down here. 
I can see the disciples go like, you don't talk to Jesus like that. Like, you don't, you, I mean, we're getting ready for, we've had this dads, you know what I'm talking about, moms, when, when kids say something that's a little smart and, and you're just like, hey, you don't talk that way to me. The disciples are thinking the same thing. Here comes Jesus. Jesus is going to get her. Another good retort. Another good comeback. Surprised and perplexed by what this woman just said, the disciples are just waiting for Jesus. And that's what you do when you win an argument. Jesus has to win this argument. Why? He's Jesus. You win an argument to prove the point. You prove you're right. You prove she's a dog. But Jesus, in in his surprise and the disciples' surprise, and I want to think that in this moment, Jesus had a bit of a smirk, a bit of a smile coming off to the edge of his mouth as she said this. I want to think that he's thinking, she did it. Why? Because Jesus knows the kingdom's different. While coming to the Jews first, the kingdom has no exclusiveness to it. His response to the woman, you're right. Matthew 15, 28 says a little better. Woman, great is your faith. She wasn't letting go that Jesus' talks of good news was not just for some people, but the good news was for everybody. The show Ted Lasso has one of my favorite scenes in it. Uh, It's this uh, scene in which Ted Lasso, the American football coach, trying to coach uh, soccer, confronts the soccer team's former owner. Now, the former owner is a vindictive, high-society person with a certain judgment towards Ted and his Midwestern sensibilities. So the team's owner challenges, this former owner challenges him to a game of darts, for which the owner, of course, in his coat, pulls out his own darts. Little does the owner know that Ted has been playing darts since he was a kid. And as the game is ending, Ted looks at the owner and quotes a Walt Whitman line of, be curious and not judgmental. Well, just a newsflash here. Walt Whitman didn't say that line. Uh, it, it, it's never been found in his, any of his writings. But it's a really cool line, so why not? But be curious, not judgmental. And I think that's it. All this talk about clean and unclean and not wanting to be filed, defiled by those not like us and all this talk of I don't want to like so-and-so because they are this way or that way or they are just different than us. Jesus puts all of that on notice in, the, in this chapter. We can, by whatever power we perceive, try to create rules and traditions to keep some people out. We can try. We can tell them to play by our rules or go somewhere else, but the kingdom seems to be calling for a different place. The kingdom calls us to a curiosity towards others. A curiosity that surprises when we talk to them. What it does is cause us to get to know someone's heart. Their inside. And they know ours. Curiosity causes us to walk through boundaries and tear down walls because both boundaries and walls are created by humans. I mean, Jesus says that to the Pharisees. You created the boundary. It was created by you, not by me. So all in all, it calls us to a faith willing to be surprised. A faith willing to risk everything for the sake of one person. 
It's a faith that is bold and brash like the Gentile woman, a faith that pushes us toward instead of away. So many are looking for hope in this world. So many are looking for transformation in this world. So many are searching for value in a world that creates boundaries and narratives that tell them what their value is. This woman knew she was considered a dog. It didn't matter. Even the dogs get crumbs, Jesus. So before you say to yourself or to me, I don't like that person because fill in the blank. Ask yourself, or maybe I will, maybe you should talk to him first and get to know him. Let yourself be open to surprises and be a bit more curious because judgment is so exhausting. Maybe you're struggling today. Maybe you found that there's a narrative that's been talked about. There's boundaries that are pushing against you. We want you to know this is a place where we'll shatter all boundaries. We'll accept you. We'll open our arms to you and we'll walk with you. We want to know your heart as much as we want you to know ours. Because none of us look all that clean on the outside. Let's be honest. But we know that the Spirit is doing something up for us to the inside. And may you see the inside working out as we are in relationship with you. If you need help, if you need prayers, we are here for you. The person next to you is here for you. There is no one pushing you outside. We open our arms with a welcome because the kingdom calls us to be a people of curiosity and love. If you have any needs today, come now as we stand and as we sing.